For those of you who weren't here in November and towards the end of last year, we did a series before Christmas called Eat the Elephant, and it was based on um, that question, how do you eat an elephant, one mouthful at a time? And we bit off some pretty huge topics. We talked about abortion. We talked about climate change. We talked about politics. Uh, We had a look at a bunch of different tools uh, that we used to pull apart big questions. And the one that we're going to be pulling apart this morning in the next 30 minutes is going to be sexuality. We're not going to go into depth about the biology involved. That's actually not our, our topic this morning. We're not going to go into depth about the sociology or the anthropology. That's not our topic this morning. Our topic this morning is really quite simple. What does God think? That's the question that we're going to be asking this morning, a theological question. But here are some of the tools that we had a look at. And if you want to go back and listen to the first uh, topic that we looked at when we started the Eat the Elephant series, it describes a bunch of these tools. But if you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be reading a lot of Scripture. My aim this morning is to actually not do much preaching, but to let the Bible, to let God's Word speak for itself. So if you have a Bible, please open it up. Otherwise, feel free to read along here. This is the NIV translation, and we're starting in Matthew chapter 15. And this will make sense in a moment as to why we're starting in Matthew 15. One more thing before we start. I am quite sure that that the way we look at this this morning will be too conservative for some of you. And for some of you, it will not be conservative enough. I'm aware of that. And I'm quite open and honest about my own biases, and I'm going to try and point them out as we go along the way. In Christianity, there is a very large spectrum of how we approach Scripture and what is highlighted to us in Scripture, because each of us has a different story. So this morning, I'm unapologetically conservative. Matthew chapter 15, let's start at verse 5. And this is Jesus speaking here. And Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and disciples. Because the Pharisees have come to Jesus and they've asked, why don't your disciples wash their hands properly before they eat? And so Jesus responds by saying this, verse 5. You say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. So Jesus is interrupting their argument. And Jesus is saying, wait a second. Let's talk about some of the rules that you apply to people. Verse 6, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And it's an interesting thing here that Jesus constantly talks to the Pharisees and he says, okay, there's what God wants and then you guys have layered all of your tradition on top of it. Verse 7, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He's speaking to the religious leaders, calling them hypocrites and saying that one of these ancient prophets was actually prophesying about them. Verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Going on, verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. So the Pharisees haven't wandered off. The disciples haven't wandered off, but Jesus calls the crowd over. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. Speaking about eating, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And we'll come back to the word defile in a moment. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? So Jesus has just called the Pharisees hypocrites. He's told them an ancient prophet was prophesying against them. And then contrary to what they were teaching, Jesus calls over a crowd and says, Don't listen to these people. What you eat does not defile you. What comes out of your heart defiles you. Verse 13. 
Jesus replies to the disciples, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, referring to the Pharisees, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And then it gets really interesting. And this is the main point I wanted to bring out. Verse 15, Peter asked, explain the parable to us. And Jesus responds sensitively and quietly and calmly and, and with great softness. And he says, are you still so dull? That's the NIV translation here. Jesus asked them, verse 17, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. And we need to pause for a second because Jesus has just done something huge. He has split the ancient Mosaic Levitical law into two different categories. Can you see what's happened here? Jesus is saying they, there are all these things about what you can eat and what you can't eat. When the Levitical law was given, over 600 commandments from God, there were all of these rules about the way you're supposed to dress, about what you're supposed to eat and drink, about the way that you're supposed to approach the temple. And there's also these other things which are about morality, which are about what comes out of the heart. And Jesus here says that all the stuff about food and ceremony, those things are not the things that really defile. What defiles a person is what comes out of their heart. And here he says, what is it that comes out of the heart? Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony or lying, and slander. Jesus is unapologetically saying that these issues here are not anything other than heart issues, and they originate in the heart. And this is part of the debate that we come across if we, if we are looking at anything to do with sexuality or, or gay marriage or any of these topics in the news at the moment. There's this debate over where does it start? Where does it come from? Where, where does this orientation and identity find its anchor? Jesus here says all of these things come from the heart. Whatever your sexual desire, orientation or identity is, it takes root in the heart. Jesus has something to say about this. Sometimes in debates, people will say, you know, Jesus never talks about about sexuality or about sexual orientation. Well, I actually disagree with that because right here he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, and then he categorizes these things. Now, in order to understand what Jesus means when he uses the phrase sexual immorality, we need to remember who he is. First of all, Jesus is a Jew. He's born and raised as a Jew. He grows up being educated at the Jewish temple when he's not educating the people who were there. He... He's also the son of God. So if we want to know what Jesus' definition of sexual immorality is, we actually need to go back to what he would have been educated with. So turn back to Leviticus. Well, actually, we'll get to Leviticus in a moment. Before we get there, we have to talk about Matthew chapter 5. Part of the reason that we're going to go back and have a look at the law is because of what Jesus says at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this, when we did the, ser the series on the Sermon on the Mount, you would have remembered that we looked at this. But Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through these Old Testament laws and makes them more intense. That it's not just about behaviorism or adjusting the way you do things. It's about the attitude of your heart. Now let's go back to Leviticus. We'll come back to Matthew chapter 5, probably at the end if we get there this morning. Leviticus 18 is a particular chapter of the giving of the law where it talks about things relating to a person's sexual activity and behavior. So if we want to know God's opinion, and there's, this is part of the debate amongst, Christian, uh, amongst Christians as well, is this first verse here, Leviticus 18 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, as someone who holds a conservative opinion, I believe that the Lord actually said this to Moses. There are schools of Christian thought that do not believe that the Lord actually said this to Moses, but that these are Moses' laws. Alternately, that the Lord did say this to Moses, but when Jesus turns up, he has a different definition of sexual immorality to what we're about to find here. But if Jesus is really the Son of God, then these rules he had a part in writing. So this is not just an ancient definition. This is also Jesus' own personal definition that he wrote. This will come in... This will become important later. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt. So first of all, there's a comparison. I don't want you to behave the way everyone else is behaving. Where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Then he starts. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. Do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Do not have sexual relations with your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she was born in the same home or elsewhere. Do not have sexual relations with your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would dishonor you. Do not have sexual relations with the daughter of your father's wife, born to your father. She is your sister. Do not have sexual relations with your father's sister. She is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual relations with your mother's sister because she is your mother's close relative. Do not dishonor your father's brother by approaching his wife to have sexual relations. She is your aunt. Do not have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Verse 17, do not have sexual relations with both the woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. They are her close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during the uncleanliness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch. For you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. So there's a little snapshot here into sexual behavior having something to do with the defiling of an entire nation. It's interesting. Verse 25. 
Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. And so here we can close our Bibles on our thumbs and go, cool, fantastic, done, sorted. Except we have a problem. If the law and keeping the law could actually make you righteous before God, Jesus would not have turned up. The issue that we have is the law is insufficient. The law is insufficient for righteousness. Let's have a look at a few other passages here. Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, now when the law was given, the law was given to set in place the relationship between God and humanity. And when Jesus turns up, we have a problem because Jesus changes the covenant. Jesus changes the way that we are supposed to relate to God. Verse 25, truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Paul writing here, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Skip down to verse 9. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No mention of the law. We'll get to where Paul talks about the law in a moment. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And this is something that will come out in some of these passages we look at in a minute. We can't go back to the law and cherry pick the law. Scripture is very clear. If you have Jesus, then you're not allowed to try and base any of your righteousness on the law. If your righteousness is from Jesus, then your relationship with the law is no longer a relationship to do with righteousness. Either the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sin and my sin and to present us righteous before God the Father, or it is not. It is not you have Jesus plus this law and that law. Oh, and do these things as well. Our relationship with the law has changed. Verse 11, clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or hung on a tree. 
He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. And we'll get to the Spirit in a minute as well. James chapter 2. When we did a series on James, you would remember this passage, verse 8, James 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And James here is talking about the way that we judge others and saying you can't say that you've received the love of Jesus and then judge someone because you're placing someone back under the law and you're placing yourself back under the law. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Or depending on a translation, it might say the law of liberty. Verse 13, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope you're noticing a change in the language here between the language of Leviticus and the language of the New Testament authors. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. When Paul is writing to the Galatian church, some Jewish teachers had come into the Galatian church and started telling them, by the way, you still need to get circumcised because that's a sign that you belong to God. And here Paul is saying, wait a sec, wait a sec. He has set you free from having to rely on the law for righteousness. So who is it that's coming in and is telling you that you have to rely on the law again for righteousness? Verse 2, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And this is part of the dilemma for us when we come to this topic of sexual identity, orientation and preference. Is that sometimes we can go, okay, we, we have received the grace of Jesus, but let's add some laws to it. We can't add law to the grace of Jesus Christ. Our relationship with the law for righteousness has changed. We'll get to what it has changed to in a moment. Verse 3, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. That's a scary phrase coming from someone like Paul. Verse 5, for through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. See, righteousness for you and me, if we have Jesus, is not attached to the law anymore. Galatians 5 verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Now, if circumcision is such a huge part of the Mosaic law, if for you and I right now, circumcision no longer has value or, or no value, if it has become a nothing thing in terms of righteousness, in terms of the value it has for your salvation, how much more other laws? Verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Paul is saying, if someone is telling you that you need to go and keep a bunch of rules now in order to get righteous, that that does not come from the one who calls you. That does not originate in God. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Scary stuff. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
starting at verse 3. You show that you are a letter written from Christ. So this is Paul commending the Corinthian church. You show that you are a letter written from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. This is important. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone... Now, what ministry from God came engraved in letters on stone? Now, if the ministry that brought death, Paul calls it, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses, well, there's a big hint, because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Paul is juxtaposing here the giving of the law to Moses and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. That what used to be taken up in our lives by obedience to the law is now being replaced with the ministry of the Spirit of God. Let's have a look here. Uh, Romans chapter 7 verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. That's his word picture. That's his example. Verse 4. So... My brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have died to the law. You are no longer under the judgment of the law. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have died to the law. That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Again, that juxtaposition, written code versus spirit. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. That's the crux of what we're getting to here. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. Pause here for a sec. One thing that comes out in the New Testament teaching, particularly from Paul as well, as educated as he is, is he says the law has one purpose, to show you that you are broken, to show me that I'm broken, to show us that we are sinful, to show us that we are depraved and corrupted and there is something eternally, irrevocably busted about us. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is you can't keep the law. You need a sacrifice. And in the Levitical code, God gives animal sacrifices. And then when Jesus comes, Jesus replaces that. The law is still supposed to convict us that we're busted, we're broken. There is something irrevocably wrong. That is still the purpose of the law. Galatians 3.19, why then was the law given at all? 
It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So in other words, the law was given to educate us until Jesus comes, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. See, the dilemma is that people having received the law didn't go, actually, I can't keep the law. No one can keep the law. We need sacrifices. We need God's grace. They went, oh, the law. Cool. We can keep the law and we will be righteous by keeping the law rather than righteous because God administers grace through a sacrifice. Verse 22. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, before the opportunity for you and me to believe in Jesus, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came. Or depending on your translation, you might have schoolmaster. The law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Again, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that Scripture this morning, rather than me speaking, that Scripture this morning is making this clear. Our righteousness is not attached to the law. So then we have another problem here. Because if righteousness is not attached to the law, then it means that your sexuality and my sexuality, that part of our identity, how we see ourselves, how we think of ourselves, the desires of our heart, our orientation towards other people, our preferences, all of those things have nothing to do with our righteousness before the Father because our righteousness before the Father is not based on us, it's based on Jesus. That means if someone walks through the door and they fit into any of those categories which we had in Leviticus chapter 18, their righteousness and their ability to stand before God the Father, if that person is in Jesus and Jesus is in them, that person has the same righteousness as anyone else who's in Jesus. They have the same righteousness as you. They have the same righteousness as me. Their ability to stand before God is not attached to their sexual identity or preference or orientation. But that's not the whole story. I told you I'm conservative. We have a problem here. Because in Matthew chapter 7, end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And the word for evildoers in the Greek is anomia. Nomos meaning law, a meaning absent or antithesis of. You who live as though there is no law. See, Jesus says, I have not come to get rid of the law. And even though our righteousness is in him, here Jesus is talking about behavior. Whether we like it or not, this is Jesus' words. And he's saying there are people who live as though there is no law and that this is part of people not entering into the kingdom of heaven. We have to do something with Jesus' words here. See, in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, it says this. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Cool. That part we've probably already picked up on from Jesus' other words and from what Paul has said. Verse 32, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So if Jesus' blood is the blood of the new covenant, then what is the nature of our relationship to the law? The law is no longer an external code of conduct written on a piece of paper or on a tablet of stone that we are supposed to conform to. The law and your relationship and my relationship with the law is now attached 100% to the ministry of the Spirit of God within us. That is now our relationship to the law, written on your heart, written on your mind. Romans 2, starting at verse 11, For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, the Gentiles who do not have the law do, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though, do, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness. So Paul is saying here it's possible for someone who's a Gentile who has never heard the law to actually obey the law because it's written on their heart. They've never read it on a tablet of stone. They've never read it on a piece of paper, but it's written on their heart. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Our relationship with the law is, not only, is no longer a behavioral modification, adaptation relationship that exists with something that's written down. If the spirit is within you, that's now your relationship with the law. It's no longer a thing. It's now a person. Your relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, if the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Son is God and the Father is God, which we believe that's what's been revealed to us in Scripture, then it means guess who knows the will of God? The spirit of God that's in you. When God was distant from people, how did God make his will known? He wrote it on tablets of stone. He wrote it on pieces of paper. He spoke to people. Now that the Spirit of God is within you, how do you know the will of God? Because the Holy Spirit is within you. We call it conviction. See, sometimes we don't trust the Spirit of God. We're a bit sus about this Holy Spirit business. We don't think he's up to the job. And so we say, oh, actually, have to sit down and read this. Now, sometimes that can be beneficial if someone goes, look, I actually have no idea what God wants me to do. Cool, well, here's what he wrote to people, 
And so the Spirit of God, is, if it's within you, that's the direction he's going to be pointing you in. That's helpful. But you're not under the law for righteousness. If you fail, if you cannot keep the law, guess what? That means you're human and Jesus is prepared to forgive your sins. A couple more passages of Scripture, then we'll tie this thing up. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, while I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So the writer of Hebrews is here quoting Jeremiah. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So if you come to Jesus and you actually say, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Take my life. Scripture says that right from then you are justified. He justifies you. He pronounces you righteous and he imputes righteousness to you. From that moment, you can stand before the Father. And at the same time, it says here, you are also being made holy. It's a process. We we have these fancy words, justification and sanctification. That when you are justified, Jesus makes you right before God the Father. But sanctification is this thing that will happen for the rest of your life where he changes your heart. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their hearts. I will write it on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, then he sorry, goes on after that. Galatians 5.14. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So it used to be if you walk by the law, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's not about law anymore. Now, all of our life, all of our identity, all of our orientation, all of our preferences, all of our decision making, all of our values are attached back to the spirit of God. And Paul says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And Jesus, when we first had a look in in, um, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus talks about those things that come out of our heart. Paul is saying, if you walk in accord with the Spirit, those things that come out of our heart that defile us are things that the Spirit of God is going to deal with. Verse 17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. It's an important phrase. You are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality. Again, Paul uses this same term. You, could, you would be hard-pressed to find a more educated Jew than the Apostle Paul. We know what his definition of sexual immorality is, and he says it's an act of the flesh. 
sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I hope you've got the picture this morning. There was a time when you and I were under the law. And if there was something that came out of our heart that was contrary to the law, we were under the judgment of the law. Make sense? Now, when Jesus comes along and he's the perfect sacrifice, as well as the perfect law keeper, Jesus puts in place a new covenant where righteousness is no longer attached to the law, but attached to Jesus. And there are two really important things we need to realize this morning. First of all, regardless of what any person's sexual identity or orientation or preference is, that is nothing to do with their justification before the Father. That is nothing to do with the righteousness that Christ imputes. That is something to do with the Spirit coming in and then being at work in someone's life. Now, here's the next important point this morning. When the Spirit came into you, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, were you made perfect like that? Is it possible that someone who adores Jesus, someone who has an utter conviction of their own brokenness, of the fact that God demands perfection and they are not perfect and their faith and their trust is in Jesus, might struggle with something for the rest of their life. Now, we know that the Spirit of God gives us power and authority to overcome things in our own hearts. But we need to have a serious thing. I'm not going to dictate this this morning, but I want you to think about your response your response to when you meet people, when you bump into people, when there are people who are going to walk through the doors of this church about the way we speak to those people, the way we behave to those people, whether we give them the same grace that Jesus has given them or whether what we give them is law. Who is it that convicts of sin? It's the spirit who convicts of sin. I don't want his job. How much patience does he have for us? How much grace does he have for us? Six months worth of grace, and then we've got to get it right? 12 months, 18 months. What if something happens after we've been a Christian for 20 years? Does he then kick us out again? There's a very, very different approach across the spectrum of Christianity that, that people have for this. I cannot look at something that Jesus and the Apostle Paul describe as part of humanity's brokenness and say, oh, no, no, that's, that's not part of brokenness. They didn't understand what they were talking about at the time. I can't say that. I dare not say that. I can't look at something which Scripture and which Jesus and which Paul affirm is part of a brokenness to do with human sexuality and say, oh, that's not broken anymore. Sorry, it's broken. You're broken. I'm broken. Every single one of us needs to bring all of our identity, every single facet of who we are to Jesus and place it at his feet. That's what repentance is, not holding anything back. We can't come to Jesus and say, here's my life. I love you. I adore you. I want you to be, to be king and to rule and reign over my decisions and my values. Oh, but this part, no, I don't need to repent of this. 
We can't do that. And across the, the spectrum of Christians who hold a, a vast array of opinions, I understand that mine is too conservative for some and not conservative enough for others. I understand that. What does Scripture say? We read a lot of it this morning. Done more reading this morning than I've done preaching. If we don't come back to Jesus' heart, if we don't come back to what he has described and what he has explained, then we're going to miss the point. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we are not under the, the 600 plus laws and commandments anymore for our righteousness, that none of us are, but that our righteousness comes only back to your grace. And Lord Jesus, where we have run back to the law to, tr to try and shore ourselves up, Lord Jesus, would you forgive us? Lord Jesus, where we have taken the law which you do not apply to us for righteousness and where we have applied that to other people, where we have given people your law and not your grace, not your gospel, Lord Jesus, would you forgive us? Lord Jesus, if there are things in our own hearts that we have pointed to and said that those things don't need to be repented of, Lord Jesus, would you forgive us? Lord Jesus, would you please give us understanding? Would you transform our hearts and our minds? Would you, would you make us people of grace? Would we freely give what we have freely received? Lord Jesus, we ask these things not for our glory and not for our kingdom's sake, but that people may know you. The people may worship you and adore you, that they may understand the depth of your love, the depth of your forgiveness. Lord Jesus, would you please help us in this? Amen.